Hello, my name is Leaf, and you're listening to In the first episode, we talked about some of the horrors of genetic modification when produced at the discretion of agriculture and pharmaceutical mega-companies. In a way, I can't blame them. They hold the keys to something that everybody needs. Food. And at some point, it became evident that turning this into the largest money-making operation they could simply holds more value than protecting public safety. But behind the scenes, there's a lot more to genetic modification and engineering than just creating herbicide-resistant crops. The debate has long stood as what many would consider a black and white issue. You're either for genetic engineering or pro-GMO, or against it. I have to admit, I've fallen victim to this dichotomy myself. But like most anything in life, It's just not that cut and dried. I think it's important to look at the whole picture rather than falling back on our bias. So that's what we'll do today. Here's the whole picture. I talked a little bit about how selective breeding has been around for millennia and how plant hybridization came about, but in this episode, we're gonna pull back the curtain even more. Behind the selective breeding that farmers of yore were doing was something pretty exciting. Farmers would grow their crops and then take seeds from whatever plants they liked best and then plant again, and again, and again. But what they were actually doing was choosing plants that expressed unique genes through some sort of abnormality or mutation. And one of those abnormalities might be in having redundant copies of plant DNA. Plants with multiple sets of chromosomes are called polyploids and can produce some pretty attractive features, like bigger fruit, and in some cases the ability to reproduce asexually through self-fertilization. Kudos me, I made myself pregnant. It can also have the opposite effect and make a plant sterile, or as we might like to call it, seedless which can still be a desirable trait. But how do sterile plants reproduce? Through cloning. Send in the clones! Cloning definitely sounds sci-fi, but it's not from the space age. It's basically just when people intervene and help these plants along with reproducing asexually. This could be entirely natural with a cutting or runner or artificially induced with plant hormones. Every plant deserves the right to experience the pride of being a parent, especially if they're a banana. Have you ever looked at a banana and asked yourself, how in the heck does a giant banana tree grow out of one of these little tiny seeds? Well, they don't. If you eat a banana today, you're eating a clone. So clones are cool because bananas are cool. And we like it when nature gives us plants with multiple sets of chromosomes because more can actually be better. Like when we get it in some of our favorite polyploids, like citrus fruits, triploids, potatoes and peanuts, tetraploids with four sets of chromosomes, oats and kiwis, hexaploids with six sets, and our favorite of all, the octoploids with eight, the decaploids with 10, 
and the dodecaploids with 12, because they give us strawberries and sugarcane. Honestly, this polyploidy goes all the way up to 12,000 sets of chromosomes in ferns, but I'll save you from going too deep. So nature has gifted these plants with multiple sets of chromosomes, but in the 1920s, people started to catch on that getting the good stuff out of selective breeding is dependent on these mutations. So naturally, they wanted to provoke them. And they did. They found out that if you expose seeds to radiation, or randomly a chemical called colchicine that was used to treat gout, they can cause mutations to happen at a much more rapid pace. This gave them a whole fleet of mutants to choose from. A couple gold star success stories from applying these mutagens are the ruby red grapefruit, a Japanese pear variety that was almost wiped out from disease was saved by mutation, and durum wheat, which is one of the most popular varieties for making pasta when it's coarse ground and called semolina, or when it's refined and used in bread. Couscous and bulgur are both made from durum wheat as well. This form of genetic modification is extremely haphazard and unpredictable. It's like playing a game of cards, and on your turn, you decide to take a risk and swap out your entire hand for a new one. And yet, these GMOs are praised, and under the right farming conditions, will end up in the organic section at your grocery store. And I don't think that's a bad call. See, GMOs aren't all bad. We'll fondly put this type of genetic modification under the umbrella of the great word mutagenesis. Some of my favorite plants are mutants. Who knew? We've got another way to introduce genes to our food, and that's through a form of genetic engineering called transgenesis. Now this is where the bold start to find traits that they like in one organism and bump it over into another. I'm talking about either plant to plant, or even bacteria to plant, which has quite a lot of potential. But there have been cases of transgenesis that involve animal to plant, but it seems to be a lot less common. Transgenesis always begins with an idea. Finding a desirable quality or trait that's being expressed somewhere to begin with. After they've located their first gene, they do some research to find out how the gene works within the original source. And then they look at how it might interact with the plant they're moving it to, and any other bacteria. Once they feel good about what they've seen, they have a couple options for inserting that DNA into the plant. The first way is through a gene gun. Pew pew! Biolistics, a fun word that sounds like ballistic, meaning projectile, and bio for biological, are a literal gun for bringing the genes over. They coat a heavy metal like tungsten or gold in DNA and then blast particles of it into the plant. This is also called microprojectile bombardment. And then they just sit and wait to see if the genes get expressed in the target plant. That's pretty fun. There's actually like eight ways to introduce the gene, but one of the most common ways is by taking this gene and putting it into bacteria that are known for their ability to inject DNA into plants. There's a whole genus of soil-dwelling bacteria that do this. 
and they're called agrobacteria. So they get the agrobacteria modified to carry the desired gene and take away any traits that could get in the way of this being a success. Then the bacteria inject this gene into the plants, and if it's successful, the plants will start to express this gene. The benefit of transgenesis is that people get to choose what type of trait gets expressed, unlike the mutations we talked about earlier, that are totally random. But it's not a perfect science, because with transgenesis like this, they have a lot less control over where the gene ends up. So they usually just go for it, and then check it later to see where it ended up. These bacteria were discovered in the 1970s to have this trait, and were originally used to treat a plant disease called crown gall disease. But most popularly, were used to introduce a pesticide gene to plants like soy, corn, and cotton. At the dawn of the 1900s, a Japanese biologist discovered a bacteria that was killing off silkworms, and then a few years later, a German biologist found it on a dead moth in Thuringia, Germany, and named it Bacillus thuringiensis, or as it's commonly known as, Bt. Bt was cultivated and produced as a pesticide through the mid-1900s, but ramped up popularity in the 1980s when insects became increasingly resistant to chemical insecticides. There are different types of Bt, and each create toxins that can only be activated by the target insect larva. For example, there's one type that targets caterpillars, and another type that targets immature flies and mosquitoes. The way it works is through these little crystals that the Bt bacteria produce. When they enter the gut of the target insect, they poke holes in that gut, paralyzing the digestive tract, and the insect stops eating and eventually starves. Its original application as a topical crop pesticide was generally regarded as safe. But that's a relative term. There's a couple reasons I'm not crazy about it. First, even when it was applied topically, farmers who were exposed to it began to experience immune responses to it, and animals have experienced a host of issues as well. Plus, there's a big difference between spraying it on plants where it biodegrades in sunlight and can be washed off, and genetically altering the plant to produce it internally. There's this fascinating occurrence that happens within bacteria, and what happens is, bacteria are really great at communicating with each other, and sharing genetic information, and then incorporating it as their own. They're naturally inclined to pick up outside DNA. It's called horizontal gene transfer. And it's arguable that bacteria that have been crafted and honed to deliver potent DNA to a new host would be even more equipped to pass along their genetic information. What I'm getting at here is that it's not only possible that this Bt gene from our agrobacteria can pass this quality along to other bacteria, but it's likely. And the human gut would make an excellent place for this bacteria to produce this toxin, long after the food you've ingested it from has digested. There's also suggestive evidence that it has already happened in a case of honeybees. Here's the sad part. I think that the intention behind BT was actually thoughtful. If we can use this natural pesticide to eradicate insects, then we can apply less chemicals and synthetic pesticides on our crops, which sounds like a win. 
This would be great if the data backed it up, but according to data from the EPA, pesticide use, at least as of their most recent data from 2012, has continued to gradually rise year over year. What actually has ended up happening is that these transgenic crops have broadly replaced original crops, at least when it comes to our cash crops like soy, corn, and cotton. And at first, they worked great. But after a few years, insects do what insects do, and that's adapt. All it takes is one insect with a genetic mutation. It would have gone on to live an insignificant life among its millions of peers, right? But when that BT toxin killed 99.99999% of the rest, it was the only living bug. And, and so now you've selected for it. Now it gets to pass its resistance genes along. That's a friend of mine and molecular biologist James Doherty. He's currently working on his third degree as a third-year PhD student at the University of Hawaii. He talks about how these crops can be alluring. Sure, especially when you promise Brazilian farmers, and this is exactly what happened, hey, buy this BT corn and you won't have to spray your fields with pesticides. He said, great. Um, But what winds up happening is now you've created a population of bugs that are resistant to the BT toxin and you wind up spraying just as much pesticide while also introducing now this gene. So it becomes this arms race with farmers fighting against nature. But like Jeff Goldblum says in the Academy Award-winning film Jurassic Park, life finds a way. And these insects aren't becoming resistant over centuries or even decades. It's happening quick. On average, in about five years. But in some cases, it's closer to two or three. Plants may undergo a few genetic alterations causing them to produce more than one type of the BT toxin. But these same plants are also getting the herbicide-resistant gene, like we talked about in the first episode. There is mounting literature on what's called gene silencing, in which the transgenes remain in the genome, but are not expressed. But the more serious issue is the tendency for the transgenic DNA to come loose, to rearrange or become lost in part or in whole in successive generations. So to summarize, at the end of the day, you might bite into a crop that can withstand multiple types of herbicides, produce multiple kinds of pesticides, and then get sprayed with pesticides anyways, and can become genetically unstable over time after having been developed from a bacterium that by its very nature is prone to pass along its genes to other bacteria and that have been specifically crafted to be extra potent. Is it likely that the food you eat is going to do all these things? No. But is it possible? Absolutely. Let's rinse that out with a commercial. And when we get back, I'll tell you which produce is the dirtiest when it comes to pesticides. Today's sponsor is me. I started this podcast to share my knowledge about the things that matter to me when it comes to making health-conscious decisions. I believe that everyone should have the tools to make their best decisions to reduce harm from their lives so they get the best chance at living a long, happy one. Even if we're just making a difference in the life of one person who listens to this podcast, that to me is worthwhile. This podcast is currently a solo project and it's pretty resource and time-consuming. So if you believe in what I'm doing, or you just want to pick up some tips about how to add some health righteousness to your everyday life, follow Health Righteous on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or visit our website. 
Just type Health Righteous, all one word, into your browser and drop a dot before the US. I thought that was a clever domain. And if this podcast means something to you, share it with somebody. Share it with somebody who you want to see live a health righteous life. And lastly, if you want to help me make this podcast sustainable, visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash healthrighteous. Any amount that you can contribute, even if it's just a few dollars, will help secure the resources we need to make this podcast something I can feasibly continue. Let's spread the gospel. All right, back to the show. The Environmental Working Group, or EWG, has taken it upon themselves to create a list for us every year using the USDA and FDA's pesticide test results to tell us which produce has the least amount of pesticide residue on the final product. Now it's important that we note a couple things about what I just said. First, this list is drawn from data that was mostly published by the US Department of Agriculture which unfortunately is not the most reliable source of health-related information. They are an industry built for profit, remember. And second, this list only takes into consideration the amount and quantity of pesticide residue. It doesn't take into consideration herbicides or any other environmental factors, so keep that in mind. And lastly, these numbers are as current as USDA and FDA data is available, but they don't check every item every year so some haven't been tested since 2002. Here is the Dirty Dozen. You got your notepad ready? These are produce items that have been identified as having the most pesticide residue on them, even after being washed and peeled. Strawberries, spinach, kale, nectarines, apples, grapes, peaches, cherries, pears, tomatoes, celery, potatoes. Knowledge is power. Knowing is half the battle. What you don't know can hurt you. Okay, that's enough euphemisms. I reached out to the EWG folks and got some more detail on the matter. Here's what they told me. Each of these foods tested positive for a number of different pesticide residues and contained higher concentrations of pesticides than other produce. More than 90% of samples of strawberries, apples, cherries, spinach, nectarines, and kale tested positive for residues of two or more pesticides. So the first five from the list, and then cherries. What? Our sweet baby kale? The poster child for health food? Over 90% of kale samples had two or more pesticide residues detected, with some samples containing up to 18 different residues. The most frequently detected pesticide found on nearly 60% of kale samples was Dacthal, or DCPA, a possible human carcinogen that's prohibited in Europe. And kale and spinach samples had, on average, 1.1 to 1.8 times the amount of pesticide residue, by weight, than any other crop. Because they're so light and fluffy. But on the other hand, we've got our Clean 15. Multiple pesticide residues are extremely rare on the Clean 15. Only 6% of Clean 15 fruit and vegetable samples had two or more pesticides. 
and more than 70% of Clean 15 fruit and vegetable samples had no pesticide residues whatsoever. Which is hopeful. But again, these numbers are only as current as the data we have access to. So, excitement with grains of salt. Here are the 15 produce items that have the lowest concentration and lowest number of pesticides after washing and peeling. Avocados, sweet corn, pineapples, frozen sweet peas, onions, papayas, eggplants, asparagus, kiwis, cabbages, cauliflower, cantaloupes, broccoli, mushrooms, and honeydew melons. Here's the health righteous take on the data. Avocados and sweet corn are the first two on their list. According to their data, less than 1% of samples showed any detectable pesticides. But the avocado data is seven years old, and the sweet corn data is four to five years old, which we've learned is the average amount of time it takes for insects to become resistant to the Bt in corn, so who knows. And we also know that 92% of corn in 2019 is genetically modified to either produce Bt or withstand herbicides, or for the vast majority, both, according to the USDA's own figures. So calling corn clean is a reach. Pineapples and frozen sweet peas are numbers three and four on their list, but pineapples haven't been tested since 2002, and frozen sweet peas haven't been tested since 2003. So you can basically just throw those out as well. And cabbage still tested positive for four different pesticides despite being on this list. It's unfortunate when people are looking to EWG as an authority on food safety. According to their most recent annual report, they have over 27 million people visiting their website every year and reach more than 70 million across their social channels. Their list is negligent, misleading, and irresponsible. If you don't have current data that proves that there's 15 pesticide-safe produce items, don't make a clean 15 pesticide-safe produce list. Nobody's telling you to make this clean 15 list. So it's good to be skeptical. It's good to follow the data. So that's the unpacking and making sense of the dirty dozen list and the clean 15. So next time you're at the grocery store and someone says, have you heard of the dirty dozen produce list? You can say, yeah, I did. My friend Leaf told me about it in his podcast, Health Righteous. Boom. Okay, so I told myself that this was going to be a happier episode. But let's just think of that last bit as the salt to make the sweet that much sweeter. Speaking of sweeter, there's something that holds a lot of promise in the sweetener industry, and that's all thanks to a genetically engineered yeast. It seems like for as long as we've had taste buds, we've enjoyed sugar. And perhaps too much. According to the National Cancer Institute, we're getting 17 teaspoons of added sugar per day. And that was the most recent data from 2010. That's extra on top of the natural sweetness that comes from our favorite carby foods. Excess sugar's impact on obesity and diabetes have been well documented but it may come as a surprise that it's also got connections to heart disease. A study published in 2014 in the peer-reviewed Journal of the American Medical Association Internal Medicine, or JAMA, displayed an association between a high-sugar diet 
and a greater risk of dying from heart disease that basically concluded the higher the intake of added sugar, the higher the risk of heart disease. And here are some ways that it does that. Consuming too much added sugar can raise blood pressure and increase chronic inflammation, both of which are pathological pathways to heart disease. And one of the more obvious ones here can be from weight gain. Consuming extra sugar from sugary beverages contributes to weight gain by tricking your body into turning off its appetite control system, because liquid calories are not as satisfying as calories from solid foods. This is why it's easier for people to add more calories to their regular diet when consuming sugary beverages. But there's hope. In the past, there has been an array of sweeteners varying in safety and varying in taste profile, but thanks to a genetically engineered yeast, we're closer than ever to finally having an organic, calorie-free sweetener, thanks to the folks at Amaris. Wait, did I just say organic and genetically engineered in the same sentence? Yep, because this yeast has been programmed to convert organic cane sugar into the most desirable steviol glycoside, rebodioside M. Now those were a lot of big words. Let's break it down. Stevia is a plant with strangely sweet zero-calorie leaves. They also don't move the needle in the glycemic index, so that's a total go-ahead for diabetics. Sounds like the holy grail, right? Well, stevia kind of has this weird chemically flavor and aftertaste, which kind of kills the buzz for a lot of people. Companies have had to toy with varying amounts of stevia in relationship to other sweeteners or sugar alcohols to get the sweetness that they want without the weird taste of stevia. But stevia as a plant is way more complex than we're giving it credit for. It doesn't just have one sweet little molecule. Oh no. It has about a hundred different sweet molecules, or glycosides, that exist within this amazing plant. And the sweetest, most sought after, is the elusive Rebodioside M, or Reb-M. It's the sweetest of all the steviol glycosides, and due to the fact that it only makes up 0.1% of the profile of the plant, it has been difficult to produce in large quantities affordably. Until now. Yeasts use sugar to produce alcohol by nature. So in shifting that genetic programming to cause it to produce this Reb-M instead of alcohol out of organic cane sugar, and then removing the yeast from the final product, creates a pure, organic, sugar-free sweetener. If this gets adapted and used widespread, we can all see a decrease in heart disease, obesity, and diabetes. So we're back to liking some GMOs again. What a roller coaster ride. So far, we've talked about the old school way of genetic modification through mutation from radiation or chemicals, which can result in organic produce. Then we talked about the newer school of genetic engineering by introducing foreign DNA to a plant through a gun or bacteria in the context of the pesticide BT, which cannot be labeled as organic. We blasted through the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 Guide to Produce, which only kind of confirmed how important it is to buy organic. And then we talked about how genetically engineered yeast can turn organic sugar cane into an organic sugar-free sweetener. 
And before we talk about the new school of genetic modification, I think it's important that we share the good word about buying organic and why I'm bringing it up so much. It's definitely not a flawless system. There's still a number of herbicides and pesticides and fertilizer that are approved for organic farming that we don't know to be completely safe. And like I mentioned in the last episode, herbicide and pesticide runoff and environmental contamination is real. But here's why it does matter. There was an important French study published in December of 2018 in JAMA Internal Medicine. It found that among nearly 69,000 participants, those who most frequently ate organic food had 25% fewer cancers than individuals who did not eat organic food. That's huge. I would love to see the world have 25% fewer cancers. And in 2018, data from a Harvard University study found a correlation between consuming fruits and vegetables high in pesticide residue and lower probability of pregnancy and live birth. And then after our children are born, we've seen that pesticides can cause developmental problems, but a study from this April that evaluated the impact of an organic diet found that after only six days of eating organic food, adults and children had a major reduction in the levels of synthetic pesticides measured in their urine compared to when they were eating a conventional diet. The greatest reduction was between 60 and 95% for malathion, chlorpyrifos, and clothianidin. Clothianidin is a neonicotinoid, which we know has been linked to the massive B decline. It's inescapable that the food that we eat and the food that we feed to our children matters. It matters to our bodies, and it matters to the farmers. I like to think that every time you buy something, you're voting for it with your money. You vote for the ones you want to succeed, the ones you like. You put your money where your mouth is. All right, new school time. New school time. CRISPR. CRISPR is an acronym for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. CRISPR-Cas9 is a powerful gene editing methodology which provides an efficient, cost-effective, and reliable process for making targeted changes to the genome of living cells. I'll get to the Cas9 part in a minute. We talked about the old school way of mutation and the newer school way of genetic engineering. They don't have control over where the genes land or change. With CRISPR, you do. Here's where CRISPR came from. In 1987, researchers found CRISPR sequences in E. coli bacteria. It's like code. They found this repeating code in E. coli bacteria. In 2012, researchers targeted the CRISPR system to specific DNA sequences, which opened the door to gene editing. In April 2014, the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard received a patent for the technology. It is currently the simplest, most versatile, and precise method of genetic manipulation. It has been likened to a word processor, where you can cut out the old genetic material and paste in the new stuff. If CRISPR is the sentence, Cas9, or CRISPR-associated protein 9, is the scissors tool. But in plants, there's not currently a lot of pasting going on. How I interpret CRISPR is it's more like a circuit breaker. There was old-school crop selection, which has been around for thousands of years, that relies on little mutations within a species that over time reveal new and wonderful traits. 
But instead of waiting thousands of years for these wonderful traits to make themselves available, you have access to the circuit breaker that turns them on or off. This is the area of science that inspires James. His colleague used the metaphor of seeing the network of genes as an old house, or in this case, a mansion. What if using these new techniques, we could start to repair the broken windows? We, we don't have to replace anything. The genes are already there. They exist as pseudogenes. They exist as defunct copies of previously working genes. I loved this idea of restoring, maybe even restoring to ancestral traits. Uh, some people call this rewilding plants, rewilding domestics. You could go in there and you say, oh, wait a second, look, I detected a gene that is mostly intact, but not expressed, right? It must have lost the first part of this gene. It's now just a mostly intact house, right? And so rather than knocking it down, rather than we just go in and we make these little repairs. So I think that's where gene editing is going. Plants have a, a, a lot of fodder, a lot of good things tucked away in the attic. And so we don't have to look into other organisms necessarily. We don't have to introduce foreign things. So I'm really excited about that part, you know, replacing the windows in this broken mansion, making this old house a, a beautiful estate again. I personally love the word he used right there, rewilding. And CRISPR has already shown some huge successes within the future of agriculture. Here's some success stories. Tomatoes that ripen uniformly, with larger, more nutritious fruit, and resistance to bacterial spot disease. Mushrooms and apples that don't brown quickly, this creates less food waste. Rice with improved yield and more environmental tolerance. Oranges that are resistant to the citrus greening disease, which is apparently a threat to the citrus industry. Cacao that is resistant to diseases to prevent eventual extinction. And gluten-free wheat that can be enjoyed by celiacs without any sort of immune response. I mean, the list goes on. There's decaf coffee here, a few others that prevent crop diseases, and a number that are responding to the changing climate. It's truly limitless what's possible here. But what we see come to the market is not. The Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard have shared this technology with about 2,700 institutions in 67 countries, but it's still patented technology. Surprisingly, however, University of California Berkeley has found a way around this roadblock and has also started filing patents for CRISPR-related systems. And as of this month, they now hold the largest number of patents on the technology. But if people want to release any crops made using this technology, they'll have to negotiate with these institutions. It's unclear what this would cost, but it's often outside the realm of the attainable, even for academics within these institutions. Dr. Peggy G. Lameau of UC Berkeley says, Everything that my lab has produced is down in the basement, in relation to the decades of work on genetic engineering and genetic editing. There's been some relief in this area, though, and that came, surprisingly, from the USDA. In a statement made about a year and a half ago by the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, he declared that the USDA does not regulate or have any plans to regulate plants that could otherwise have been developed through traditional breeding techniques as long as they are not plant pests or developed using plant pests. And then he said, quote, 
With this approach, USDA seeks to allow innovation where there is no risk present. Plant breeding innovation holds enormous promise for helping crops against drought and diseases while increasing nutritional value and eliminating allergens. End quote. I mean, he's not wrong. It's virtually identical to what we've been doing in nature already, but with more control and precision. We covered a lot of ground today. There are big parts of what's happening out there that seems reckless and misdirected. It's not kind that big agriculture has done some things to put people in harm's way. But the more we learn, and the more we know, the better we can equip ourselves to reducing harm from our everyday lives. If you learned something today, and you want to share it with someone, pass this podcast along to your friends, your family, your coworker, your elevator attendant, the person who delivered your dinner, anyone who's made your life interesting that you'd like to see stick around a little longer. Hey. Hey. Your support really matters to me. Follow Health Righteous on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, so I can get a grasp of who I'm talking to here. Visit our website, type Health Righteous into your browser, all one word, and drop a dot before the U.S. Join the movement. I'd love to keep making these episodes, so consider becoming a patron. I'm currently accepting patrons on Patreon and sponsorship of many kinds, so visit patreon.com healthrighteous or shoot me a DM. Thank you for taking time out of your day for your health and the health of each other. Stay wild or get rewild. And tell me what you'd like to hear me cover in a future episode. I'm going to leave you with this. James had some powerful thoughts on where this technology is going. The future is as bright as the people who shape it. So like any tool, it can be used for ill or for good. And, you know, the old ways, monocropping and dousing the land with chemicals and everybody sees it's very obvious that's not working. My hope, though, is that the next crop of scientists coming up, the millennials, we're true biologists and we're biophiliacs. We're in love with life. We're, we're in love with the natural systems using sophisticated editing like CRISPR to borrow right from Mother Nature's playbook. I do see a lot of hope and potential there. And really, it's going to be the young scientists coming up who you know, feel that connection to nature, feel that reverence, feel that respect. And so I'm hopeful and I feel good about it. I'm hopeful. Hell.